you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church. What a joy it is this morning, isn't it? It's a true day of celebration. I'm really, really thrilled to see the four individuals obeying in the waters of baptism publicly, openly confessing their faith. What a day of rejoicing it is for us, just to witness this. And I just want us to know that even today, as we look at this, look at this passage of scripture, there is rejoicing in the heavenly realms. It says that I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So this morning, church, we ought to ask the question, what is believer's baptism? What is it? We are going to take a break from, the, from our study from the Gospel of John and we'll resume that back in the new year. But during the month of December, we are going to uh, pick up topics from the Advent, uh, first Advent. But today being a special Sunday, we'll be looking at the theology or the doctrine of baptism. It's important for us to have a clear understanding of what this baptism is all about. So please, you need to take down your own notes, because I, don't, I have not given any handouts. But you can always listen to this teaching online if you need to go through this again. One of the sad ironies of church history is that a subject of baptism that should unite all believers has divided us. Has divided us. Paul says very clearly to the saints in Ephesus, he says, there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But sincere godly believers differ over many aspects of that one baptism. It does not matter what other people may say or think about baptism, but church is important for us that as a church, we understand why we believe what we believe. Why we believe what we believe. We should be able to articulate and reason out our understanding to another very clearly. So let us take some time to understand the biblical view of believers' baptism. To begin with, let me show you the different denominational views of, on baptism. Now, when you look at, talk, look at the Roman Catholic Church, they say baptism causes regeneration. That's what they believe in. The, the pedo-baptist, which is those churches that baptize the infants, they say baptism symbolizes a regeneration that will occur in the future. Probable future regeneration. Or if we look at the New Testament text, baptism is a sign of being born again, being cleansed from sin and beginning the Christian life. But when you look at the Baptists, our views is that baptism symbolizes the fact that inward regeneration has occurred. So let me first present to you the views of the Baptists, because we are Baptist Church. The Baptist Confession of 
1689 adopts the language of the Westminster Confession. And those of you who want to see it, I just put a copy of that in the library so you can borrow it. We can take a look at it. And this is how, it, how it's worded there. Baptism is intended to be to the person baptized a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection and of his being engrafted into Christ and of the remission of sins. It also indicates that the baptized person has given himself up to God through Jesus Christ so that he may live and conduct himself in newness of life. And it goes on to say in the second part of the same paragraph, it adds this, who can be baptized? The only persons who can rightly submit themselves to this ordinance are those who actually profess repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, being willing to yield obedience to Him. I believe this is the position strictly in line with the Scriptures. Only believers in Jesus Christ should be baptized as a confession of faith in obedience to Christ's command. So Baptists believe that Jesus gave two ordinances to be carried out by every church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now you may ask, Pastor, what does the baptism do to me, a believer? What does it do to me? Now let me show you an article. It's Article 7 of the Articles of Faith of the Union Baptist Association of 1840. This is what it says. Being a church ordinance, please follow very carefully, it is a prerequisite to the privileges of two things. What are they? Church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Church membership and to the Lord's Supper. So church, each of these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is both symbolic and highly significant because each symbolizes the Christian message of grace and salvation and relates to major other doctrines. So let us dive into the text to understand what believer's baptism is. I'm going to preach from various texts. Now the Lord has commanded us, His church, to perform two ceremonies, as I said earlier. Let us look at the first one, is the baptism. It's as Pastor Dio already read from the scriptures, in the Great Commission, the Lord said, Go therefore, it's a commandment given to all of us, and make disciples of all nations, and then what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's what we are going to look at today. And the second ordinance that the Lord has given is, we find in the book of Luke, we find in Mark, Matthew, and also we find in, 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 in Corinthians' uh, epistle, here the Lord says, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. So when you talk about the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus to commemorate his death, to symbolize the new covenant, to point to the fellowship of a redeemed people gathered at his table, and also to anticipate the messianic banquet yet to come. But we are going to look at that hopefully in the month of January. So let's come back to the believer's baptism. The Roman Catholic Church calls it sacraments. 
Have you heard the term sacraments? Yes. Now, they, what they teach is teaching that these sacraments in themselves actually convey grace to people. So in other words, what they say, without requiring faith from the persons participating in them. And I've given you the source from where I got this. But the Baptists, our view is especially, we call it ordinances because they were ordained by Christ. So this morning what I want to do, church, is to do a systematic approach to this topic so that we can understand this doctrine very clearly. Here's how I want to approach this. I want us to first look at the practice of baptism, then the candidates for baptism who can be baptized. Number three is the pedo-baptist view on baptism. And number four is the necessity of baptism. And number five is the outcome of baptism. So let's look at the first one, the practice of baptism. And we're going to look at three things within that. The firstly, the meaning of the word baptism and the use of the word baptism in the New Testament. And thirdly, we are trying to understand what this symbolizes. Now, first, let us understand the meaning of this word. I told you I'm more teaching than preaching today, so you take down your notes and always go back and listen to this message later. Now, the Greek word baptizo, if you look at the Greek word, it really means this. It means that to dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge. That's what the word means. Or it means to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water, to wash oneself or to bathe. Or another term that is used is to overwhelm. That's what the word means, the word baptism means in Greek. Secondly, we are going to look at how this term is used in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament passage shows that this word means immerse. Everybody say the word immerse. Immerse. Let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 5. Then all the land of Judea, those from Jerusalem, went out to him, this is to John the Baptist, and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Note that this text says people were baptized by John in the river Jordan. So the Greek word was very clear. It's not beside or by or near river Jordan, but it is in the river Jordan. Let's look at another passage of Jesus' baptism. Mark chapter 1 verse 10. And immediately coming what? Coming up from the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Now, in Mark 1, verse 10, the Greek text specifies Jesus came out of water. Do you get it? Came out of water. Out of water. Let's look at another passage in John chapter 3, verse 23. Now, this is about John the Baptist baptizing people in Enon. Look at this. Now, John was also, sorry, John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was what? Much water. Much water. And they came, uh, and, they came and were baptized. There was much water, which is needed for immersion baptism, isn't it? 
You remember Philip's encounter with the eunuch of Ethiopia. Now here was, here, if I said, read the narrative in chapter 8. Eunuch was returning home after spending time in Jerusalem worshipping. And Philip was led by the Spirit to go this desert route from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he saw eunuch reading Isaiah's text about Christ's death. And the Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as, Jesus, as Philip explained the scriptures, here's what eunuch asked Philip. Look at this. Acts 8.36. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, yes, you can be baptized. So what we are seeing here, the sequence of events, here's eunuch who is going in his, car, in his carriage and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip came and explained it to him. And he was convicted by that word. And he's asking, how can I be baptized? There's water. So he saw the body of water, possibly a lake, and he wanted to be baptized. So we looked at first the meaning of the word baptism. I said it means immersion. And we looked at, secondly, the use of the word baptism. We see in every situation, every example that I showed you, it's about immersion baptism. Now let us ask the question, what does immersion baptism symbolize? It symbolizes our union with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Let us examine two passages, and Pastor Dio has already read one passage for you, but I'm going to bring it up on the screen so that you see that. Paul is writing to the saints in Rome, and this is what he says, So, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Let's look at another passage here. It's, is this to, to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes, Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Church, what do we learn from these two passages? When a candidate for baptism goes down into the water, it is a picture of going down into the grave and being buried your old self. And coming out of the water is a picture of being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. So baptism, therefore, very clearly symbolizes death to one's old way of life, and rising to a new kind of life in Christ. So baptism, by sprinkling or pouring, simply misses the symbolism. I hope you are with me so far. So, so far we have, we have, uh, we have studied, we have looked at the, 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 the practice of baptism, we looked at the meaning of the word baptism, we looked at the, word of the use of the word baptism in the New Testament, we looked at the symbolism of what that, what that baptism means. Now let's move on to the second part of it. Who are the candidates for baptism? Who should be baptized or who can be baptized? What we learn from these biblical examples is that baptism was administered only to those who gave a believable profession of faith. 
who gave a believable profession of faith. After Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we look, we see in Acts 2, verse 41. Those who received, uh, NIV says, those who accepted his word were baptized. Not everyone. Only those who accepted the word were baptized. Now we look, look at another passage of scripture here in Acts chapter 8. Philip is preaching in Samaria. He is preaching the gospel and here's what he says. And when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of, and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. The word was preached first by Philip, then they believed, followed by the baptism of men and women. Here's another from Peter, Acts chapter 10, verse 47. I'm reading, reading this. Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now you might wonder, Pastor, where does it say? Let's dive into this. What is Peter saying here in this passage? Peter is witnessing the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentile believers. So Peter has seen that and he's asking the question, why should they not be baptized? Because baptism is appropriate for those who have received the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So it begs the question, church, when do you receive the Holy Spirit? If you have been to our pre-service prayer, Brother Roy was touching on that point today, this morning. Paul writes very clearly. I want every one of you to follow very closely, otherwise you might miss it. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him you also trusted when? After you heard the word of truth. What's the truth? The gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, what happened? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So when you believed, when you committed your life to the Lord, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of, uh, Holy Spirit of promise. Who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until when? The redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So what we have learned so far, the point of these three passages, church, is this. Baptism is appropriately given to those who have received the gospel and trusted in Christ for salvation. If we are to baptize someone who is not really committed their lives to the Lord, they are just having a nice shower in the, in the pool. We could apply some shampoo and make it so beautiful. The first comes, you need to be convicted. You need to commit your life to the Lord. Without that, baptism has no meaning. So we looked at two things so far, church. We looked at the practice of baptism. We looked at the candidates for baptism. Now we are going to look at the pedo-baptist view of baptism. Pastor, I hear everything that you are telling me because this question is asked by many. You don't know my parents were baptized as infants. They used to go to this church, to the Methodist church, to Anglican church, to churches where they practiced pedobaptism. So are you telling me that they're wrong? Have you ever wondered that question? Are they wrong? 
Peter baptism means practice of baptizing infants. Please, church, you have to come along very carefully. It holds the view that baptism is rightly administered to all infant children of believing parents. Very common in many Protestant churches. The argument for Protestant pedo-baptism is this, that there is an apparent biblical argument, I want you to come along, it is known as the covenant argument. Everybody say the word covenant argument. It is called covenant argument because it depends on seeing infants born to believers as part of the covenant community of God's people. Of God's people. Let me explain this to you. The old covenant had a physical and external means of entrance into the covenant community. One became Jew by being born to Jewish parents. Therefore, all Jewish males were what? Circumcised. You had to be circumcised so that become part of the covenant community. It is not only them. If you read Genesis chapter 7 verse 13, you can, you'll see that. Circumcision was not restricted to, to, not only for them, but rather given to all who lived among the people of Israel. So in other words, only those who were circumcised can be admitted to the covenant community. So the admission to the covenant community required circumcision. But Paul very clearly explains to us what circumcision truly means. Look at this passage. Paul again writes to the church in Rome and, and, and he says real circumcision is a matter of the heart and it's not literal. It's not physical. He says, no, a, pass, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, not an outward act. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So let me show you a comparison between the Old Testament covenant community and the New Testament covenant community. Come along with me, please. I told you this teaching today, not preaching, so you have to follow along very carefully. Keep your eyes wide open. Now, we, I'm going to give you the comparison between the Old Testament uh, covenant community and the New Testament covenant community. In the Old Testament covenant community, physical birth into the nation of Israel. If you're born, you become part of the covenant community. In the New Testament, spiritual birth into the church. Number two, in the Old, covenant, in the old uh, uh, Testament covenant community, physical circumcision required for admission. Faith was not an entrance requirement. Faith was not an entrance requirement to be part of the covenant community. But in the New Testament covenant community, believers' baptism is needed for church membership. What am I saying here, church? This may be shocking for some of you. If you are not obeyed in the water's baptism, you are not fit to be a member of a church. That's what it means. Baptism be given to those who show evidence of genuine faith because membership in the church is based on an internal spiritual reality, not on physical descent. Then, then the other one, the third one, is a physical temple to which Israel came to worship. But whereas in the New, New Testament covenant community, believers are built into a spiritual temple. 
In the old, old covenant, we can see physical sacrifices of animals and crops upon an altar. But in the New Testament covenant community, what is required is that believers offer spiritual sacrifices. Let me show you a passage of scripture to support what I'm saying. Peter writes here, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully, church. Here are the practical consequences of pedo-baptism. The person presumes, let me give it, bring it up on the screen for you. The person presumes that they have been regenerated. Do you get it? I'm born to a Christian parent. I've been baptized as an infant. I think, hallelujah, I am a good Christian. Do you get it? Number two, they fail to feel the urgency of their need to come to a personal faith in Christ. I'm already been baptized as an infant. Number three, with time, this tendency is likely to result in more and more unconverted members of the covenant community, members who aren't truly members of the Christ church. I was baptized as an infant because I was born to Christian parents, not because of a confession of faith. And lastly, what that happens is that it's going to cause internal troubles by unregenerate sector of the membership. Church, picture this for a moment. Let's say in this church we have people, we have infant baptism, and there are people, I mean, let, me, let me pick up Keith because I know he doesn't mind me saying anything. Let me pick up, pick up this fellow. He is a little rascal. I can't trust him. But he was baptized as an infant and he's growing up in this church. And he demonstrates everything to be a leader. There is no internal transformation that has taken place with the exception that he was baptized as an infant because his mom and dad were nice people. They are indeed nice people. But because, they were, because of them, he was baptized as an infant. But he thinks that he knows it all. But he is worldly. Because he never came to that personal conviction. Imagine putting him in the board of directors for the church. He is going to set the pace for the church. No wonder we have problems in the churches. When we don't have committed true believers. Are you with me so far? Do you get the picture? So well-meaning Christians can argue and refuse to obey in the water's baptism, looking at the tradition. The world has, the world has to convince, I hope it does, to those who have not obeyed in the waters of baptism. You know, it is our pride that stops us. I want to take a moment to share my, my personal testimony, church. I was born in a Methodist church, sorry, for a Methodist uh, parents who go to a Methodist church. I grew up in a Methodist church. I was a very active member of the youth group, but I was baptized as an infant in a toilet because there were riots happening and my mother was worried that they might come and kill me before I was baptized, so they took me to the toilet and they baptized me. That's okay, I'm okay with that. I grew up thinking that I was a good Christian. And... My, my, my dear wife, whom I have from the cradle to the grave, we are together. 
And we were getting married in Singapore, and we were there, and she, one day she came to me. Her father was a Methodist priest. So we grew up in an, in an environment where infant baptism was, pedo baptism is the right thing to do. I ridicule people who talk about water baptism, being born again, I said, what is this? So we were in Singapore, and my wife came to me and said, she was convicted, she said, I'm going to obey in the waters of baptism. I really thought she has gone off head. I thought, what? We are Methodist. We grew up in this tradition. She said, no, I need to be. I'm convinced. I'm convicted. I said, honey, I love you so much. You do whatever you like, just leave me alone. I said, I'm, you know, do whatever you like. And she went and obeyed in the waters of baptism. I did not. Church, but I love the Lord. And I thought I knew the Lord. And the Lord has to teach me with iron rod. Bring me down to a level where I couldn't even lift my head. Come to a realization. And then I surrendered myself to the Lord. And I was baptized. Well, so far we have looked at three items now. We looked at the practice of baptism. We looked at the candidate for baptism. We looked at pedo Baptist view of baptism. And we're going to look at the necessity for baptism. Baptism, now let me examine this. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Let me be very clear to you. Just because I'm going to make a bold statement, but you must take it in the context. Just because you are not baptized, God is not going to kick you out. Now, let's go slowly on this. Justification from sins takes place first at the point of your faith, not at the point of your water baptism. Baptism is necessary if we are to be obedient to Christ because he commanded baptism for all believers. Now let me put it this way. You know, I can take my... Let me take Keith. You know, he's, a, he's a good... This thing for me. I know he fell in love with this beautiful girl that, whom I brought, I introduced to him. Trust me, I get the pride of that. And let's say he went to her. I know that I, I was monitoring everything. I didn't just let him just take her around. But let him... Come along with me, please. He goes to Nithya and says, Honey, I love you. And uh, I want you to be my, my life the rest of my life to be with me. So she's excited and she says, yes. But Keith says, you know what? I do, let's not have a wedding. I don't want to tell anyone about this. But I love you to death. I'm committed. <laughs> but please, don't tell anyone about this. Tell me frankly, what, what would you think about my friend? You know what? If someone is engaged to a girl and he says, I don't want to have a wedding, there's a problem with the commitment, isn't it? Yes or no? Yes! If I go and tell someone I love you, I want you to be part of my life for the rest of my life, but let's keep it to ourselves. There's a problem in this commitment. Baptism is wedding ceremony. We are telling the whole world, I'm married. Engagement is the time that you are convicted and committing your life to the Lord. 
Church, if you stop with an engagement, there is a problem with your commitment. That is why I said baptism is not needed because baptism is an inevitable outcome of your conviction. If you are not obeying in the waters of baptism, you are not being saved. Why do I say that? Because you don't want to obey God's command. It's like I want to be engaged, I don't want to get married. I question your commitment. I hope you are with me so far. Let's look at the last part of it. When a pastor says last part, everybody loves it. So that's, what, that's the only reason I'm saying that. Okay, all right, let's go on. So we looked at the practice of baptism, we looked at the candidates for baptism, we looked at the pedo-baptist view, and we looked at the necessity for baptism. We looked at so the last part is that the outcome of baptism. So what's next? Now, where are the other two candidates who got baptized? Rapture has not taken place. Pastor, where are your grandchildren? They're over there, okay. Because this message is for you guys and also to everyone else. So how should my life be when I obey in the waters of baptism? That's a question that you should ask. Now that I'm baptized, what's next? So Paul, very clearly, in the book of Ephesians, he talks about who you were and who you should be before and after Christ. And Paul says, before you came to Christ, you had three problems. Let me show you very quickly. Number one, he says, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of your mind. Everybody say futility of your mind. You have a depraved mind. You are spiritually unaware. You have false God and false religion and false philosophy. What, what Paul was saying is you had a problem with your head. In your mind, you had a problem before you came to Christ. Then he says in verse 18, look at verse 18, he says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Paul is saying there is a problem with your heart, not only with your head, but with your heart. And what he says, through ignorance, you have hardened heart. Your understanding is darkened. You cannot see the things of God. And then he says, the third problem that we have is that who being past feeling have, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and with greediness. So in other words, what he's saying is that you become desensitized to sin. Isn't that how we were before we came to Christ? Desensitized, you lose your sense of pain and not bothered about the consequences. We are so self-centered and, and greediness is all we have. Then he says, God comes into your picture. Verse 20, he says, verse 20, he says, but you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So Paul is saying when Christ came to us, he brought with him knowledge and truth. He taught us the truth about God. And we are no longer in the dark, but we are now walking in the light. That's what he's talking about here. And then again, he gives three instructions, and I want all of us to take it, all who believes here. I believe this applies, this is a great checklist for every believer, and also to those who have been baptized today. Verse 22. Then you put off, everybody say put off. 
put off, that's what he says. Then you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Deceitful lust. Paul talks about the outcome of your transformation. We are called to put off ourselves. Something that we have to renounce. That's what he says. Church, the old man of sin remains alive and well within us all the time. But Paul is saying we need to do a radical surgery. Four of you, I just want to encourage you. There may be some things that you may have to surgically remove from you. That's what Paul is saying. And it is to all of us too. We spoke about that today, isn't it, at the men's meeting. Pruning. We need to chop it off. Something that we love to have, but we chop it off. And Paul puts it so beautifully in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, to about this. Likewise, you also, he uses the word reckon, yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must be decisive each day, and he says reckon means tangible ways of measuring it. That's what reckon means. Calculating it. So in other words, yeah, I have, been, I have been doing this, 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 this. I used to smoke, I used to drink. I don't do this anymore. That's what reckoning means. You're able to calculate it. You're able to identify what you have been severing off from your life. You must keep a log of it. Before and after. You had to perform a radical surgery. Church, every surgery is painful. Let me tell you an example. For example, let's say this little finger, as much as I love this finger, let's assume there is, a, there is a gangrene set on the tip of the finger. What should I do? Can I live along? I don't want to make a radical surgery. I need to chop it off. Do you think chopping off my finger is going to be easy? No. No one would love to chop off a finger. You chop it off because you want to be right with God. Sometimes this is very attractive to you. Sometimes we think this is the only way to live. Sometimes we think without this I cannot live. But what we don't realize, this gangrene is going to come down and kill you one day. That is what Paul is talking about here. Put off something to renounce. Then he talks about in verse 23, he says, oops, Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What does that mean, church? It means there are many instructions we can see in the scriptures. Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transferred by the renewing of your mind. But here's the passage that stuck so deeply for me as I prepared this message. Uh, when Paul wrote to the saints in Corinth, I want the four of you and every one of us to keep this or memorize this. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing, read that with me, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought bring to captivity. You will only allow what is pleasing to the Lord to come in your mind. So in other words, it's something to renew. The question you should ask, four of you and all of us, what would Jesus do in this situation? Would Jesus love the way I'm talking? Would Jesus approve this in my life? Is it okay for me to go here? Is it okay for me to think along this way? Something to renew. And lastly, 
in verse 24. That you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So in other words, the physically, the phrase literally means, church, that the new man was made in the likeness of God. All of us. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he passed on that sinful nature, but when we are saved, we were recreated in the likeness of God. We are partakers of the divine nature. So we, every one of us should be able to echo with Paul and say this. And I want us to read this together as our confession today. God, from this day onwards, from this day on, this is how my life is going to be. Can we read this together? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have been called to something to reveal. Church, Christ must live in us and he must be revealed in and through our lives. So what we learned so far, and, and, and in, a, in, a, in a small this thing, if I want to put it, your old self, Paul says, you, you had a problem with your head, you had a depraved mind, you had a problem with your hearts, you have a hardened heart, a problem with your hands, you are desensitized to sin. And in your new self, Paul says this. Oops. You have something to renounce. Daily, put the old man to death. Daily. That should be a prayer in the morning. God, let the old man not surface in any way or form. Help me to do the radical surgery. And something to renew. Renew our mind and have the mind of Christ. Be sensitive and see what would Jesus do. And lastly, something to reveal. When others see me, will they see Christ in me? Will they see Christ in me? Can I ask the worship team to come? And we're going to sing a beautiful, beautiful hymn about what Christ has done for us. It's a beautiful hymn, it's, it's called, I you know you all know this, Oh Victory in Jesus, My Savior Forever. And let me bring it up, if the passage is there. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. 